this morning, I want to speak to you about King David. And of course, King David is a very important and, uh, and in, uh, a real uh, featured personality in the Bible. And his life is a collection of, of, of many things for us to learn from. His triumphs, the mistakes that he's made, as well as more, very importantly, his recovery <clears throat> from the mistakes that he's made. I mean, his exuberance, his abandonment to God, you know, the fact that we all look to David as the man whose heart is after God's own heart, speaks a lot about the model that David is supposed to be for us. His victories on the battlefield are legendary, how he slayed Goliath, how his battle at Belparazim, the breakthrough of many waters, and of course, he's the king who took Zion's hill. Now, but at the same time, when you look at David's life, there are moments that are not just uh, mistakes, they are not just uh, triumphant and glorious, but there are moments in his life that is downright embarrassing. And, uh, and perhaps moments that, you know, he would have preferred had not been recorded in the, the scriptures and uh, for us to be reading it. Now, one of these accounts, I believe, is found in 1 Samuel chapter 21, verse 10 to verse 15. And I want to read this to you. In a very formative season in David's life, I believe David was uh, in his early 20s or around 20, 20, very young at that time, okay? In verse 10, uh, the Bible says this, that David arose and fled that day from before Saul. And he went to Achish, the king of Gath, and the servants of Achish said to him, Is this not David, the king of the land? I mean, he was not the king of Israel, but he was called the king of the land. Did they not sing of, sing of him in one, to one another in dances, saying, Saul has slain his thousands, and David his ten thousands? Now David took these words to heart and was very, very much afraid of Achish, the king of Gath. So he changed his behavior before them, pretended madness in their hands, scratched on the doors of the gate and let his saliva fall down on his beard. Then Achish said to his servants, look, you see, the man is insane. Why have you brought him to me? Have I need of madmen that you have brought this fellow to play the madman in my presence? Shall this fellow come into my house? Amen. Now, let me give us a background and let me paint uh, a little bit and point out some interesting considerations about what this uh, encounter is all about. Perhaps put some flesh to the description that is given. Now, the account essentially happens when David was still uh, very young and up to that point of time, David had been faithfully serving King Saul. Uh, by then, he had married Saul's daughter. He was also the best friend of the king's son and he was seeing success in his military career where everywhere he, go, he went, he was winning the fight. His star was rising, but then all of a sudden, you know, Saul became jealous against David because David was being more successful on the battlefield. And so the king began to turn against David. And this culminates at this point where David knew that suddenly everything that he had is gone. He had lost favor with Saul and overnight from being the fastest rising military commander in Saul's kingdom, David became a fugitive. And when he realized that Saul was after his life, was going to kill him, he flees and he goes to this place called Nob. And there was the priest that was there. And then he, had, he took off the showbread uh, that he was not allowed to eat. He fed it to himself and to his men. And then he asked the priest at Nob, do you have a weapon? And the priest says to him, I have no weapons here except the sword of Goliath. The sword of Goliath. People correct me. It's not sword. It's sword. Sword. Okay, sword. As long as you understand what I'm saying, okay? <laughs> and, and, and it happened to be the only available weapon, but then, uh, you know, uh, David said, there's no weapon like this, I'm going to take it. Now, then this, uh, this account really gets interesting because the very next place that David goes to is a place called Gath. And Gath is the capital of the Philistines, and he goes to the king of the Philistines, Achish. 
Now, don't forget this, okay? This is really unusual. When you read this, you might miss this, but this is so unusual. He goes to Gath, to the king of the Philistines, the enemies that he's been fighting, and he brings Goliath's sword with him, which is a trophy of Israel's victory over the Philistines. Because up to that point of time, Goliath was the greatest champion the Philistines had ever had. And David kills Goliath, and he takes the sword of Goliath and cuts off Goliath's head. And that sword has become a representation of Israel's victory over the Philistines. Not only that, David himself had a reputation. They were singing jingles and they were going about how David has killed tens of thousands of Philistines, okay? Now imagine this. David comes to the very people that he's been killing and he brings this artifact of their defeat. You know, when I think about this, the first picture that comes immediately to my mind is a, a particular scene from The Hobbit, okay? And, I, and I'm a big fan of, uh, you know, Gerard Tolkien and the whole series. And that scene is when, you know, you know when Thorin and, and, you know, and, um, and, and, and Bilbo and the whole gang of uh, dwarves, they were traversing through the mountains and then they fell into the caves where the goblins were. And then his, Thorin is brought before the king of the gob, uh, goblins and in his hand he was wielding the ochreus, which is called the goblin cleaver, the sword that has killed countless numbers of goblins. And, you know, and it's an absolute insult and the king of the goblins goes mad when he sees this thing. Now, that's exactly what David did. David went into the, end, the midst of the enemy, the capital, to the king and he wields this sword and sword in front of them. Sword, sword, sword in front of them, okay? Now, I wanna, I'm going to delve a little bit deeper into David's motivation for doing this because it just seems totally mad. It's insane. It's silly to do that, okay? But what, what we do know is that from this account above is that when David came to this place, the Philistines were split. I think that at one point, Achish was thinking to himself, it's great that David is defecting to us, it's a victory for us. But many of the Philistines did not like the fact that David was there, right? They did not take kindly to David's appearance and David wrote in Psalms 56 to describe what he was going through. And if you read Psalms 56, you'll realize that David came under tremendous pressure and his life was being threatened and he was going through such an intense season in his life where he was, you know, on the one hand, if he stayed there, you know, his life is at risk. He, he thought that they would have killed him. But at the same time, he couldn't flee. He couldn't go because he was taken captive by the Philistines and he was caught in a place where he could neither leave nor stay. And that is when David began to feign madness. He began to pretend that he was insane. Now, sometimes we read accounts in the Bible and there is not a sense of, you know, imagination that we assign to this. And we don't really think very much about this. But I want to show you a little picture to fire up your imagination. Think of a man who is disheveled, unshaven, who has not bathed for days and weeks perhaps, whose clothes are in tatters, who's smelly, who stings, who's incoherent, dribbled, snot all over his beard, broken nails, stained, somebody who's probably stained his pants because he's not able to go to the bathroom properly, you know, who's eating from the floor and from the refuse beans and there were sores that were probably growing on his body. That is David at that moment when he feigned madness. This wasn't just a difficult season in David's life. Let me tell you this, this is an absolutely humiliating one for us to consider. It wasn't like the time when he made a mistake with Bathsheba and then he had to, re he had to repent, but this was humiliating. This was embarrassing. I don't know if you have ever had embarrassing moments in your life. I've had many of them. If I could write them all down, it would be a, quite a joke book, okay? And... Um, I remember once, you know, I was, I, you know, the, the things when you do weddings, you, you have a lot of embarrassing moments. 
And wedding's the worst time to make a mistake. You know why? Because everything is captured forever. And you know, the wedding couple has got their wedding video, they're going to keep it forever. And if you conducting the wedding makes a, 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 a mistake, an embarrassing mistake, worse still, okay, it'll be horrible. So I remember there was this couple I was marrying, you know, and I was so confident. I said to them, hey, just follow my instructions in the wedding. Everything will go well. It'll be fantastic, you know, just pay attention, you know, and I like kind of assured them. And then on the day of the wedding itself, the bride comes down with the father and they walked down the aisle. It was beautiful. She looked radiant. She came to the front and the first words I said, who gives, who gives this man to be wed? And the whole church erupted in laughter and I couldn't stop people from laughing. They just laughed and laughed and laughed and laughed. And in my mind, I'm thinking to myself, this is all going into a permanent video in the couple's life. I'm just grateful the couple didn't leave church after that, okay? <laughs> But, but David, it wasn't just a funny, embarrassing, this was this was humiliating experience. Amen? But the funny thing and strange thing is that out of this experience, David wrote two Psalms, and that's Psalms 56 as well as Psalms 34. And Psalms 34 is the one that I really want to focus in because Psalms 34 is a very, very significant Psalms. And it became, it, it was so significant that it literally became an important element in the life of the Jewish people, in, in, uh, particularly their religious life, okay? So I want to take some time to read through Psalms 34. So if you join with me, and uh, the scriptures are going to come up on the screen, and uh, let me read you, uh, read to you Psalms 34. There are elements of this Psalms that will be very, very familiar to you, okay? Psalms 34, a Psalm of David, when he pretended madness before Abimelech who drove him away and he departed. The, the word Abimelech is different from Achish because Abimelech is actually the title of the king, like Pharaoh or something. And Achish is the name of the king. Um, in verse 1, you know, David said this, I will bless the Lord at all times. His praise shall continually be in my mouth. My soul shall make its boast in the Lord. The humble shall hear of it and be glad. Oh, magnify the Lord with me and let us exalt His name together. That's very familiar for us because there are some famous songs that have been written. Uh, that cites these verses. In verse 4, I sought the Lord and He heard me and delivered me from all my fears and they looked to Him and were radiant and their faces were not ashamed. This poor man cried out and the Lord heard him and saved him out of all his troubles. The angels of the Lord encamps all around those who fear Him and delivers them. Oh, taste and see that the Lord is good. Blessed is the man who trusts in him. Oh, fear the Lord, you his saints. There is no one to those who fear him. The young lions lack and suffer hunger, but those who seek the Lord shall not lack any good thing. Come, you children, listen to me. I will teach you the fear of the Lord. Who is the man who desires life and loves many days? that he may see good. Keep your tongue from evil and your lips from speaking deceit. Depart from evil and do good. Seek peace and pursue it. The eyes of the Lord are on the righteous and his ears are open to their cry. The face of the Lord is against those who do evil to cut off the remembrance of them from the earth. The righteous cry out and the Lord hears and delivers them out of all their troubles. The Lord is near to those who have a broken heart and saves such as have a contrite spirit. Many are the afflictions of the righteous, but the Lord delivers him out of them all. He guards all his bones, not one of them is broken. Evil shall slay the wicked, and those who hate the righteous shall be condemned. The Lord redeems the soul of his servants, and none of them who trust in him shall be condemned. Beautiful Psalms. One of the things that we need to realize about the Psalms is that this is what we call 
uh, acrostic psalm, psalm because in, 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 the, in the original Hebrew language, it is written in alphabetical order. Okay? And the psalms that are, uh, that are written in alphabetical order are done so to enable the readers to more easily memorize the psalms. Okay? And that's what it is. But this Psalm 34, I want to show you some instances in which it has been embedded into the life of the Jewish people. Okay? Number one is this, that it is recited in its entirety uh, in the morning prayers on the Sabbath as well as Jewish holidays. So the, the, the Jewish people on the Sabbath day in the mornings, they will literally pray this whole Psalms. Those whole Psalms, they would recite it. So it's something that they pray on a weekly basis. Verse 4 is recited whenever the, whenever the laws are taken out from the chambers and in the synagogues, the Torah or the laws will be kept inside a compartment which is called the Ark. And every time the laws are being taken out, Psalm, uh, the, uh, the verse number 4 would be recited. Verse 10 to verse 11 is, uh, constitute the grace uh, that uh, the Jewish people will say after meals. So they don't just say grace before meals, they say grace after meals. Uh, verse 14 to verse 15 forms the basis for the closing paragraph of the Amida. And the Amida is the central prayer of the Jewish liturgy, which is being prayed every time, uh, three times a day. Okay, So the Jewish people pray this, the, the Amida three times a day, and you have a substantial portion of uh, that, that prayer uh, that originates from Psalms 34. Now, what I want you to notice is this that this is a psalms that came specifically out of David's experience in feigning madness. This is perhaps, I think, his, one of his most embarrassing, one of his most humiliating moments. This psalms was not written out of a place of religious ecstasy when David had some kind of an encounter with God or when he was caught up into heaven or when he had a trance or when he saw something of God that he never saw before, but it came from a place of embarrassment and of indignity. Amen. And, and, and out of that plays a weakness of, of terrible, you know, uh, uh, um, you know, humility comes this beautiful psalms that actually constitutes a huge part of the religious life of the Jewish people. Now, I want to take time to give us a couple of things that we can learn from these psalms and from what David has gone through, okay? And the first thing I want to ask to, the first question I want to pose to us is this, whom do we fear? And this is what the psalms brings out for us. Now, I want to, now, just examine the question as to why David went to Achish. I mentioned earlier that, you know, it was foolish. It doesn't make sense for him to go to the Philistines. But I want to take time to explain it because I think that that's really important for us to understand. Now, I believe this. The idea of going to the Philistines and bearing the sword of Goliath, you know, on the natural doesn't make sense. And the Bible is not explicit in revealing to us David's intentions and his motivation as to why he did that. And I want to give you my personal take, which I believe to be very, very plausible and true, okay? Now, when David went to Nob and he asked the priest for a weapon, the priest says, I got no weapons, I only have the sword of Goliath, let me pass it to you. And David takes the sword of Goliath, and when he saw the sword of Goliath, the idea of going to the Philistines began to formulate in him. The idea was not just to take this to the Philistines, but to defect to the Philippines. After all, the sword of Goliath would make a perfect gift of appeasement, a restoration of a trophy of the Philistines back to them and saying to them, hey, take me in. This is a true defection. I would want to stop serving Israel. I want to start serving the Philistines. And I want to explain this because David at this point, he, up to this point of time, he was essentially a very young person and he had served most of his life, almost his whole life as a soldier. He understood structure, he understands authority, and he operates well under it. He had men under his command, and he was under command himself to the king. Now, my son, my eldest boy, of course, uh, just finished uh, uh, BMT on Friday. 
you know, kind of thing. And up to this point of time, uh, he really, really dislikes the army, okay? If you tell him, hey, you want to sign on or not? He says, huh? Mad, uh, sign on, you know? But, but I want to say this, that there are other people that I know that would sign on in the army at the drop of a hat. In fact, they'll sign their whole lives away. And because for them, the army represents the perfect place for them. They love authority. They love the structure. They, they love the regimentation of the life. And they love the sense of mission and clear-cut you know, uh, actions that needs to be taken. Now, that's a David. David was built for the army. David was built for war. This was a, a place where David was super comfortable in. And, so, and then all of a sudden, as he was rejected by King Saul, all these sense of security around him disappears. Instantaneously, he had no one to report to. He had no troops to command. He had no covering, so to speak. He belonged to no camp. He lost all his sense of affiliation. There's no more a regimental badge on his shoulders. And he became a, you know, he became a ronin. He became someone with no one to report to. And, he, and at the same time, he must have felt angry, betrayed by Saul. Yet served faithfully Saul and the nation of Israel. He fought his battle, risked his life. And yet at the flip of a coin, because Saul was jealous, because Saul was backslidden, because Saul had problems, David lost everything. It must have hurt David. And in this state of loss and anger, it is not inconceivable. In fact, it is only natural to see David seeking to go away from the uh, Israelites and to the Philistines. He wanted a covering. He needed a sense of belonging. He needed somebody to belong. He needed to be, to be back in action in the very things that he feels comfortable with. Now, I want you to consider verse 13 to verse 14, okay? Because David here says this, he prays this, keep my tongue from evil and, you know, keep your tongue from evil and your lips from speaking deceit. Turn away from evil, do good, seek peace and pursue it. You know, there's something about the prayers that we make, the things that we enunciate. If I preach something to you in church on a Sunday, I'm telling you this, it's because I have done the very opposite of what I preached. If I tell you do good and, you know, and don't do this, it's probably because I've done the bad thing and I've realized the wrong of it. Right? That's how prayers in our lives begins to formulate. I believe this, that the prayers are really a reflection of our struggles. We don't pray over something that we don't struggle with. Amen? Right? I mean, if you don't struggle with, you know, with nicotine, you never pray, Lord, deliver me from nicotine. Right? You know, if you're not in trouble, if you're not seeking help in some area, you never ask God. So our prayers really reflect the very things that we struggle in. In other words, there is no doubt that David struggled with his lips. David struggled from speaking evil because he's been betrayed. He must have gone to the Philistines. He must have spoken bad about Saul and said, Saul, horrible man, awful leader, terrible. I've not done anything wrong to him. And he's doing all these things to me, right? And so there is this sense of expression to give us a clue of what David was going through. Not only that, in the Psalms, you'll see a theme of fear and uncertainty. And it begins with David expressing his own fear. He said, I sought the Lord. He answered me and delivered me from all my fears. But David didn't stop there. He moved from his own fears. And then three times later, in verse 7, verse 9, and verse 11, David said, let's turn to fear the Lord. Let's move away from the things that we fear in the natural, but let's embrace the fear of God. Now, here's the deal. We all learn to operate under various kings in our lives. All of us, we have got kings ruling in our lives. Amen? And they represent authority figures. They represent the things that we rely on, where we draw our sense of security and where we draw our sense of comfort. Well, and, and, and this is where all of us begin. But God doesn't want us to stay under these kings, whether it is King Saul or whether it is King Achish. 
Instead, God wants to be the king over our lives. He wants to deliver us from all our fears, right? And he wants to put one fear, that's the fear of the Lord in every one of us, so that God becomes our reliance, God becomes our security, and God becomes the person that we seek to please. You know, growing up, I had a very unhealthy approach towards authority. You know, I was a real authority pleaser because... You know, when I was young, you know, the one person I really wanted to please my, was my natural father and I never got the approval that I wanted from him. He never ever said to me that he was proud of me. He never ever said to me that, you know, he never even gave me a thumbs up, never gave any praise to anything that I did. And I grew up with this tremendous need for it. And when I came into full time, I found myself constantly seeking the approval from Pastor Young. You know, I would do things and I would be very careful to watch his reaction. If he praised me, you know, I would be so happy. You know, and I would press myself to work harder and harder because I was living off those moments of appraisal from Pastor Young, the authority figure in my life. And then if ever he reproved me or he said something, you know, that was negative or he corrected me, I'm telling you, it would drive me to a place of just emotional upheavals. But I tell you this, this was not how God wanted me to live my life. And I lived like that for, for a number of years in full-time ministry. But there was a definite moment where God came and God delivered me from that. There was a distinct moment where I encountered God and God showed me that He is my source, not just my provider, not just my material needs, but He's a provider of wholeness in my life. He's a provider of completeness. He's the one who gives me approval and of affirmation that truly brings satisfaction. And then when I broke through that, it changed my relationship with Pastor Young. And I believe this. I believe this is what was happening to David. He was running from one master and seeking out another master. But in the failure to find the master in Achish, God showed up and God said, stop doing that. I will be your master. I will be your king. You will report to me. You will serve me. Amen. And God used this episode to deal with David. You know, amazing, after this thing that happened, uh, the very next thing the Bible tells us is that David fled to the wilderness. I love the wilderness because the wilderness is a place where God brings us to a place of dependence upon Him, right? The wilderness is always a place whenever you find a man of God and you find a nation of Israel in dependence is because God is saying, I need you to learn to rely upon me. I want to say to all of us here, if you're going through a time of shaking, if the normal pillars that are foundations around you are being shaken, don't waste a good shaking. Don't react, don't turn to other Achishes, don't turn to other kings in your life, but instead turn to God. Let Psalms 34 be your guide through these times. Amen? Now, the second uh, point I want to bring to a question I want to bring to us is, who do we call to, right? Verse 4 to verse 6, David said this, I sought the Lord, He answered me, and delivered me from all my fears. I love the next part. Those who look to Him are radiant, their faces shall never be ashamed. This is such a, a wonderful verse considering what David went through, the humiliation, the embarrassment, and yet he says, they shall never be ashamed. Amen? You know, when David feigned madness, it is my conviction and belief that David was not feigning madness because he had this brilliant stroke of genius. If I pretend to be mad, they'll kick me out. No. I believe he feigned madness because he didn't know what else to do. He feigned madness out of a sense of fear for his own life and what is going to happen. But what is most important for me is this, that despite the fact that David was not moving by faith, but moving by fear, God still answered David's prayer. And this is the takeaway I want to give to us this, because there are many times in our lives where we are confronted with issues 
whereby we have no solution and maybe we don't even have faith over what is going to happen. But if you would learn, no matter what your circumstance is, to call out to God, God who is good, God who looks at the weak, our weakness and frailty, God who is compassionate and, love, and, and His loving kindness endures forever, that same God will answer us. Amen. And I want to encourage you, if you're in a place where you just don't know what to do, because there's some things that are always going to be out of our control. And that's where we call out to God and say, God, help me, help me, help me in this situation. I love to look at, you know, how often the Old Testament narrative is different from the New Testament narrative when they talk about the same event. When Moses uh, was talking in uh, the book of Exodus about his escape from Egypt after he killed the Egyptian man in Exodus chapter 2, verse 14, Moses, the, the Bible tells us this, that Moses was afraid and he fled from Pharaoh. He was afraid and he fled. Then you read Hebrews 11, verse 27, and we are told a completely different story. We are told that by faith, Moses left Egypt. Now, fear and faith are very opposite of each other. So the question is this, you know, do we believe the Old Testament or do we believe the New Testament? Is it by fear that Moses left or is it by faith that Moses left? And I want, us, I want us to realize this, that Exodus was authored by Moses. And, and Hebrews is written by the Apostle Paul under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit. Exodus represents how Moses saw himself at that moment when he left. And Hebrews represents how God saw Moses at that moment. And I think that this is so encouraging. Because in Exodus, Moses was merely describing his own experience, his own feelings, and he was gripped by fear at that moment. And yet, the Bible, when God looks at what Moses did and the uh, culmination of what became of Moses' life, God said, Moses left by faith. You see, this is what we do. We, this, is, this is what we can learn from here. God always sees us in better light than how we see ourselves. God always sees us in better light than how we see ourselves. When, you know, you look at Abraham, you know, when he was, uh, you know, when he's wandering the land, I mean, he was, he, you know, one day up, one day down, one day up, one, I mean, he, he was so afraid, he lied about his marital status. In the immigration form, he was filling up, single, he wrote. And then you come to Hebrews, and Hebrews says, Moses wavered not in his faith. He didn't waver at all. So again, there is this uh, difference, and it is, it is this, how, this is how God sees us. That when we call out, whether we're in a place of fear, whether we're in a place of weakness, when we cry out to Him, God always delivers us, and He changes the narrative of our lives from one of fear to one of faith. Amen? Finally, I want to bring us to the final question, whom do we please? This episode of feigning madness, where David became a mad king, was not the most glorious moment. In fact, it looked every bit like a moment of defeat, right? And when you look at David describing himself during this period of time in Psalms 34, David used some very telling uh, adjectives, humble, poor, troubled, brokenhearted, afflicted, crushed in spirit. The state of David in this, at this point of time, let me say this, is not just weak, it's absolutely pathetic. There is nothing resembling victory or triumph in David, and when David escaped from Gath, I'm not sure if he would have wanted anyone to know about it, right? I mean, I, I you know, of course, I develop a bit of a thick skin, you know, and I like to tell my embarrassing moments. But I want you to imagine some embarrassing moment in your life that you feel so embarrassed about. You feel so horrible about it that you wish that nobody would ever know about it. That you wouldn't even tell your spouse, you wouldn't even tell your children. 
you know, the things that you have done, the things that, you know, I'm, I'm telling you in my own life, you know, I, there are things that I, I've done, there are moments that have been so humiliating, I've not even told my wife, I've, I'm not intending to tell my children, I don't want anybody to know about it, right? And I think about this, you know, I, I'm sure all of us can imagine some moment like that, but you think about this in David's life, and here is the Holy Scriptures, God doesn't let, let you decide what is told, and He takes the most humiliating moment and He publishes it publicly for all posterity, for all generations to read about it. What is lost in the eyes of men somehow registered as a victory in the eyes of God. What is humiliation in the eyes of men somehow registered as glorious in the eyes of God. And God just sees things so differently. And the result is that a psalm is birthed, Psalm 34, that became a huge part of the prayer life, not just in, amongst the Jewish people, but amongst us as believers, Christians. And God takes what is the most humiliating in experience in our life and He turns it into a source of hope redemption, and a roadmap for all generations to come. I'd like to invite all of us to stand, and we are almost out of time, and I want to bring this to a close. And I want to encourage us. I really want to encourage us. I really want to speak life to us. Because reality is that we're constantly, we're often faced with situations that are not ideal. If you're walking with God, trust me, many are the afflictions of the righteous. But in Psalms 34, David tells us, but you will not be crushed by those afflictions. You will not. You know, you'll go through lots of things. You might go through hell. You might go through embarrassment. You might go through humiliating experiences. But as long as we keep our eyes on God, as long as we cry out to God, God has a way of turning our fear moments into faith moments. God has a way of turning our humiliation into victory. God has a way of turning our embarrassment to becoming a lesson for others that they may take courage from it. Amen. And as David, in madness, in feigned madness, spoke these things, out of that place of feigned madness came a beautiful psalm, Psalm 34. And I want to encourage us to take heart because maybe God is using your life to write a psalm. Maybe God is using your life to write a script. Maybe God, right now, in a place of great weakness, God is doing something that will bring encouragement to others. And let's keep our eyes upon the Lord and let's pray. Father, we just thank You, Lord, for your goodness, Lord. Father, we thank you that you are a turnaround God who turns around things in our lives, oh God. And all you're looking for is a man or woman who is faithful to you, Lord, who would seek to walk in righteousness, who cries out to you in a place of their weakness, oh Lord, in a place, oh God, of brokenness. They will call to you. Father, your word in Psalms 34 tells us, Lord, that it is about the one who is contrite, the one who is broken, Lord. And Father, Lord, we glory in the place of weakness, Lord, for in our weakness, your strength is made perfect, oh God. And Father, we thank You that even the cross, Lord, what appears to be a place of total defeat, Lord, became a place of greatest victory where all the powers of darkness was defeated in a single point of moment, O oh God, because the God of the universe embraced weakness, Lord. And Father, that's the wisdom that transcends all ages. Father, we love You, Lord. We pray, O oh God, may that be pronounced clearly over our lives, O oh God. May that be what we seek to... Uh, Display to the world, Lord, not a place of strength, not a place, oh God, of success in the eyes of the world, but a place of authenticity, a place where we are open, Lord, to show what really life is all about and what a powerful God can do through a weak human being, Lord. Father, we thank You, we bless You, God. And now I just speak Your blessings over my brothers and my sisters, the blessings of God the Father, the blessings of God the Son, and the blessings of God the Holy Spirit. Be with You and abide with You now and forevermore. And everybody say, Amen, Amen. Praise Lord. Let's give the Lord a clap often, shall we?
just listened to a production of Cornerstone Community Church. Please note that all unauthorized reproduction, distribution, or sale of the recording is prohibited. For permission to reproduce or distribute the sermon, please write into mail at cscc.org.sg. We hope that you have been blessed.